right, good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And if you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 961. And so let me catch up if you haven't been here for a little while. Two weeks ago, the disciples, well, just really three of them, we had James, uh, we had John, and we had Peter that went on top of the mountain with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration is what they call it, and they saw Jesus in all of his glory. And then they walked down, last week we talked about how they walked down back into the valley into real life, and there's problems there, and the disciples that were left behind that didn't go up on the mountain were not able to cast out this demon that was in this boy. And Jesus comes and, of course, is able to cast it out without a problem. And so it was their lack of faith. And so this argument today that we're going to see kind of is sparked by this between the disciples. And they're arguing who's the greatest. And I can imagine, I mean, Peter, James, John just saw the glory of Jesus and they come down and the other disciples can't even cast out this demon. And so this argument happens. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach an extremely valuable lesson. Uh, He really changes their paradigm on what greatness, true greatness is. And so I want you to pay attention to that as we read this passage. I want to pray one more time, though, before we dive in. Father, we, first of all, confess that often we strive for worldly greatness and we compete with you for greatness in our pride. And so I plead with you for humility. Uh, as I speak and as we, as we hear your word, I pray that your spirit would instill in us a humility that would change us and produce fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so picking up in verse 46, chapter 9, verse 46. So an argument arose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child put him beside, by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. All right, so let's stop there. And before we get all judgmental against the disciples about this argument that they're having. Let's think about greatness and and, and what it is. Let's define greatness, okay? And so from a worldly perspective, how does the world define greatness, okay? And this is not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer this. Instagram, how many followers you have on Instagram, okay? That's greatness. Yes, yes. How else? Money, yep, yep. Position, status, yeah, power. What? I thought I heard something over there. Fame, popularity, okay, all of those things. How much strength you have. It's, it's described by how much honor, distinguishment you have. Wonder, notable, remarkable, exceptional, good. Greatness is often defined by your success or your status, 
your power, your money, your influence, your control, material possessions, accomplishments. LeBron James, okay, he's kind of the standard. We think of greatness a lot of times. And he'll, he'll tweet with a hashtag, striving for greatness, as he's tweeting about his work ethic and, and how much sacrifice he's putting into the game. Well, striving for greatness, though, doesn't always look like LeBron James. It, it doesn't even always look like an obsession to climb the corporate ladder or uh, bragging like the disciples are doing here in this, this situation. Sometimes it's very subtle. And I want to take a moment for us to explore some of the subtle ways that we strive for greatness. In fact, Jonathan Edwards points out that there, there's some sneaky ways that pride kind of manifests itself. And so I want you to examine your heart during this time and, and ask yourself, okay, which ones of these do, do I deal with? Because this is a universal issue. We all deal with some of these, if not all of them. So number one, sometimes our pride will manifest itself in fault-finding. Often pride will cause us to, to filter out the evil that it's in our own heart and yet at the same time filter out God's goodness in other people. And so we just see their faults. That's why we can sit and listen to a sermon and think about all the other people that need or should be hearing this right now rather than focusing on how God is supposed to be working in, in our hearts. And this is a subtle way that we fight for greatness with others. Another way, number two, is not just a fault finding, but a harsh spirit. Pride causes us to be irritated and, and judgmental when we see other people's sins. Next week, we're going to see that John desires to call down fire on the Samaritans because of their lack of hospitality. Now, we might not go to that extreme, but maybe we make just a, a joke about the craziness of our, our spouse or our kids, or, or we're reading a social media post about somebody else's political opinions and their rant, and, and we, we, we see that, and it causes pride to rise up in our hearts and a harsh spirit. And again, we're, we're fighting for greatness in those moments. Another one is, number three is superficiality. And this is what I mean by that. Pride often causes us to be overly concerned, not with the health of our own soul, but how other people perceive us. And so we tend to fight the sins that have an impact on how people will, will perceive us, and we tend to just ignore or, or make peace with the sins that nobody else sees. Not wanting others to look down on us is another way that we fight for greatness. Number four, defensiveness. I mean, pride always feels the need to defend itself. When your spouse, even, even the most loving rebuke, your pride makes it feel like an attack. And it doesn't matter what they're, the, the concern that they're sharing, often what happens what, when, when we do that is those, you're saying, how dare you think any kind of negative thought about me? And again, even if we're not fighting for greatness there, we're at least trying to protect our own greatness. Number five, desperation for attention. And so pride is always hungry for attention, respect. Pride loves to, to tell the better story, and so do you find yourself, while somebody's telling a story to you, you're, you're not even really listening to them because you've already thought of a better story that you want to share with them. Or your attention sinking can be uh, more subtle than that even. Maybe it's just in your mind, you're fantasizing. 
about that perfect relationship or that, that perfect job or the bigger house, the, the, the bigger, better, whatever it is, because you've got this hunger for other people to adore you. In those moments, you're fighting for greatness. One more, number six, neglecting others. Pride prefers some people over others. It, it honors those who the world deems as worthy of honor. We feel great when we know and when we spend time with those people who we think are great. And so uh, the flip side of that is we end up ignoring and neglecting others. We're fighting for greatness in those moments. And I'm sure that there are many other ways that we fight for greatness. It manifests itself in jealousy or, or just hiding your struggles from other people. From, uh, it manifests itself often in false humility. I think you get the picture. Striving for greatness, it's a universal issue. All of us deal with this, if we're honest. And it's, it's nothing new. I mean, Genesis 11, way back at the very beginning, what were they doing in Genesis 11? They, uh, the, they decided to build a tower up to the heavens. Why did they do that? Why did they, why did they build the Tower of Babel? You remember? Yeah, they, they, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but the text also says something very interesting. So we want to make a name for themselves, they, but they were scared of being scattered or dispersed over the earth. In other words, they were scared of becoming insignificant. They were scared of not having any kind of honor or greatness. And think about it, what does it mean not to have honor? In other words, what's the opposite of honor? It's shame. Shame is the opposite of honor. And so, understand this. Striving for greatness is not just about helping or getting people to appreciate you or like you or think highly of you. Striving for greatness, in a sense, also is a running away from shame. Let me say that again. Striving for greatness is running away from shame. Because we, we hate shame. I mean, the feeling of shame is, shame is the worst. Shame is a result of feeling guilty about something, but the truth is you can be totally innocent and still feel shame, right? Just when, you, when somebody looks down upon you, you feel shame, even if you've done nothing wrong, even if you think that they're looking down upon you, you feel that same shame. And, and so you, you do everything. I mean, we do everything to avoid the feeling of shame, when the guys were when we had the axe throwing contest, right? I mean, guys were coming over. I knew this; they were going to come over. And so, what did I do beforehand? I practiced throwing axes because I don't want to look like a fool, right? I don't want to be that guy that could never hit the hit the target. And so, I practiced my. <laughs> it just got like that was me. <laughs> so I practiced because I didn't want to look like a fool. We do everything we can not to feel the shame. And so, typically, we do one of two things. When we feel shame, we do one of two things: either we we hide our shame like Adam and Eve, okay? After they sinned, what did they do? They, they hid themselves and they, they covered up because they felt shame. Or to deal with shame, we do the opposite. We strive for control and power and success and popularity. In other words, we strive for greatness. And so the, the disciples here are arguing with one another about who the greatest is. And so in a sense, they're, they're running from, from shame. And I, we don't know what it exactly looked like. Maybe there was some jealousy going on there that some of them got to go up the mountain and, and some of them didn't. Maybe James was making fun of the disciples that weren't able to cast out this, this demon. Maybe 
Maybe it was Peter bragging that he, he walked on water, and, and John's like, man, dude, you sunk in the water. I'm surprised you didn't ask them to build a tent on the water or something. I don't know. We don't know what they were, what they were fighting about or what that looked like exactly, but Jesus notices their bragging. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't just hear what they're saying, he also knows what's in their hearts, which is just a good reminder that Jesus knows everything that we think, even those thoughts that we won't tell anybody else, and yet he still went to the cross for us. That's grace, that's mercy. And so Jesus, the master teacher, he, he uses a live illustration here, and uh, I, I think I, I should do this, um, Kai. Would you want to come up here and be an illustration for me? <laughs> All right. I need you. She's, she's not shy. All right. I just need you to stand here. This is super sil- simple. And so this is what Jesus does, right? He, he pulls a child up, and probably a little bit younger than Kai here, too. It's probably a younger, younger child. And here's the thing, though. Back then, this would have been a much different illustration, okay? Because back then, children were not highly looked upon at all. I mean, they were loved by their parents, don't get me wrong. But, I mean, gosh, to be a child back then meant that you were extremely insignificant. I mean, nobody really, I mean, in fact, there, the, the Talmud talks about that if you're going to spend time with a child, you, you're just wasting your time. And so, children back then were, were much, they were the, the least of these. They, they, were, they were nobodies. They were, they, I mean, Back then, they did not have trick-or-treat, okay? And they especially did not have trick-or-treat like 10 times before Halloween, okay? I, I, just a little rant. When I, we were little, we went once, <laughs> and you got as much candy as you can. Now our kids go like 20 times, and you, you've got a whole room full. Okay, I'll stop. But anyhow, th- no, they didn't have trick-or-treat. They didn't, I mean, there was no way that they, th- th- their schedules were not revolving around their kids like, we do today, they, they did not treat their kids like kings and queens like we do today. All right, thank you very much. And so when Jesus is sharing this illustration, essentially what he's doing here is, in our day, it'd be kind of like pulling a bum off the street and saying, look, you need to receive them when you do that, then you receive me. Or it would be like pulling a, a U of L fan off the street. Right. <laughs> that was bad, sorry. <laughs> it could be worse. You could be a Duke fan. Okay, no, not really. You get my point, though. I mean, it, he's pulling somebody off just off the street and says, look, you have to be willing to take the least of the least. That, he's, he's redefining greatness in this moment, in his upside-down kingdom, he's saying true greatness elevates weakness over strength. And as I think about the characters in Scripture, who got this? I think the Apostle Paul got this better than anybody. Uh, when he talks about the thorn that's in his side, and if you want to turn there, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That thorn in his side, and we don't know exactly what it was, but he uses it, Paul says that that thorn was a gift from God to keep him humble. We don't think that way. This is what he says, starting in verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited, because of all the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. 
that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think it's intentional that we don't know exactly what that thorn was. Maybe, maybe it was some kind of physical pain that he was dealing with, and, and he pleaded with God to take it away, but he won. Maybe it, maybe it was, and this is kind of where I lean. Um, I'm not sure about this. I can't say this with authority, but maybe it was a shameful memory that he asked God, just let me forget about it completely. I mean, he, he did persecute Christians in his past life, right? Maybe it was just a person that continually threatened him, bullied him, Whatever it was, God used it to keep Paul from becoming conceited, to teach him the, the sufficiency of God's grace, and that it was in his weakness that Christ was actually glorified. And this newfound humility that Paul had allowed him to find contentment even in the midst of weakness and insults and persecution and hardship and calamities. And here's the insight we need to catch from this. Paul has figured out a much better deal, way to deal with his shame those insults that he was experiencing, the persecution that would have caused shame in his life. He's figured out a much better way. He's, he's figured out really the, the only way to deal with shame. It's not by hiding it. It's not by running after worldly greatness. It's through humility. It's through humility we trust Christ with a childlike faith. Pride-fueled shame says this to you. It says, you are guilty and you are deficient. Humility-fueled faith in Christ says you are innocent now in God's eyes and his, his grace is always sufficient. So worldly greatness always fights to be stronger than the people around you, but Jesus recognizes that worldly greatness is insufficient. It never satisfies. There's always going to be somebody else that's higher, better, bigger, stronger that you're chasing after. And even if you do become the best at whatever you're striving to become, you can't stay there. Eventually, you're going to be lost. You're going to be forgotten. You're going to die, and, and your legacy will be forgotten. Chasing after the world, after worldly greatness is chasing after the wind. Even if you catch it, you're not going to be able to hold on to it. So Jesus, on the other hand, taught and he modeled a totally different definition of greatness. In Mark's version of this same account, he records Jesus saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last. And then he goes on to explain it by saying, he must be last of all and a servant of all. The disciples were pretty slow learners, evidently, though. They, in fact, later on in Luke 22, they have this same debate between one another. They're, they're arguing. It says in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute, again, also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it, is it not the one who reclines at the table? 
but I am among you as the one who serves. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus makes it clear in his teaching that ultimately the greatness of his kingdom comes through servanthood. And Jesus modeled this. I mean, think about the creator of the universe. After the the Last Supper, what does he do? He gets up, and they would have been reclining uh, around the table. He gets up, takes off his outer garment, he puts a towel around his waist, and he gets down on his knees and does what was reserved only for the lowliest of servants. He washes his disciples' feet. And I think the lesson for us is that servanthood is not just simply something we do. It's who we are. Jesus says to his disciples, go and do likewise, but uh, we're called not just to go and fit in service when it fits into our schedule. It's not a duty. It's a mentality. It's not what we do. It's who we are. We're called to be like Jesus, and Jesus considered himself a servant. James said this in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure, undefiled before God the Father is is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So Jesus made it clear, even in his illustration of this little child, the least of these, that not only are we to serve, but we are to serve the least of these. And so we come to James, and again, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to study the Bible and to go to church once a week? No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And the need has never been greater for the church to step up and care for those who are vulnerable and marginalized. Um, As of September, here in Kentucky, 9,654 kids are in the foster care system. It's almost doubled in the last 10 years. The drug epidemic has caused so much neglect and abuse. Not only that, AARP ranks Kentucky second to last in all of the United States in providing long-term care for seniors and people with disabilities. The crisis is real. And I know for myself it sounds just overwhelming at times. And so we need to ask the question, we need to wrestle, okay, where's the fuel come from for us to continue to serve the least of these? It's everywhere. Where's the fuel come from for us to keep going even when it seems way too much for us? And I, I think Paul captures or answers this, and he really captures the heart of what Jesus is teaching here in our passage. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, and, and I'll read it. Uh, If you can't get there, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Paul says this. He says, do nothing from rivalry 
or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here Paul is not only encouraging humility, but he's also revealing what fuels our humility. Humility is fueled as we gaze at the humility of Christ on the cross. And humility grows as we stand in awe of His majesty, the creator of the universe who made Himself nothing, took on the form of a, of a servant, giving up His rights to rule on high, was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And often we've heard that so many times that we just kind of glance over it. But you know, when you really think about that, when you meditate on that, I mean, it should shock us into humility that the creator of the universe would go that low for you and for me, that he would love us that much, that he would be willing to, to put himself as a servant and die on the cross. And as you dwell on that, as, as you stand in awe of that, you, your, your humility should grow. And your desire to serve others, then I think, also will grow. You see, the gospel frees you from the need to, to strive for greatness. Uh, in, the, in the gospel, you're fully accepted. You don't need to try to strive for other people to, to accept you. In the, in the gospel, your, your shame melts away through the forgiveness of your sins. And Christ on the cross takes that shame, takes the penalty that we deserve. When you trust in Christ, you receive His grace, you receive His mercy, you receive His forgiveness, and the burden of that shame and that guilt melts away. So let me do a quick recap of where we've been before we hit this last section. And so the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, which in a sense is a way that they were running away from their own, their own shame. Jesus gives them a, a paradigm shifting lesson, an illustration, he brings a child up and, and says that, look, greatness, true greatness elevates weakness and servanthood over strength and power. And then we looked at Paul's letter to the Philippians to see what fuels that type of humility and service. It's that we gaze at the humility of Christ. And so that's where we've been. And, and I want you to look back at our text in Luke and pick up in verse 49. John has a very interesting response to Jesus and his object lesson on humility. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And so that same prideful attitude that Jesus was just rebuking, that caused the disciples to, to argue who was the greatest is still coming out. Again, they're slow learners. It, it causes John to say, look, he's not part of our group, and so he ought not be casting out demons in your name. 
And Jesus again rebukes him, and he, he teaches a valuable lesson about what true greatness is. He says, the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus is teaching them that true greatness elevates the kingdom over even your own family, even your own church family. That ultimately, this is, what we're doing here is not about the kingdom of Mercy Hill. It's about Christ's kingdom. And so when we see another church preaching the gospel and we see them growing and, and fruit from that, we should celebrate that. We should be praying for other churches around us, encouraging them, partnering with them. And we should be willing to send out our best, not hoard the, the leaders, but be willing to, that, I think that's the measure of a, of a healthy church, a willingness to, to send out our best, because it's not about our kingdom, it's about God's kingdom. And so, when you let go of the world's definition of, of greatness and fully embrace Christ's vision here, you're going to see godly fruit in your life. You're going to start to see it, it frees you to love other people. It frees you because you're not constantly chasing after their love for you. It frees you to be able to, to love them. It, it brings you a greater joy to be able to serve others because you've been gazing at the majesty of Christ and how he has served you. It brings a, a sustaining peace knowing that you can't lose the honor that Christ gives you. There's nothing that can take that away. When you've trusted in Christ and he takes your sins away, as far as the east is from the west, no matter what you've done, there is no shame in Christ Jesus. And you can feel secure knowing that that shame can never, or that, that honor can never be taken away from you. There is great peace in knowing that. And... I think, again, we recognize as we walk through these passages more and more, I think God's been teaching me that these things don't come naturally to us. And so it, we need to pray for a miracle that God would instill this type of humility in our hearts. And so I want to spend some time right now praying that God would help us to do that. Father, we recognize once again our pride is constantly at battle with you. And in our pride, we fall short and we, we focus on achievement rather than people. We focus on being the best and the first and the brightest and the most popular rather than serving one another in love. And we recognize that apart from your Spirit, transforming our hearts, we will just continue down that path. And so we plead with you that we would take the lesson that Jesus has shown us in this passage and we would welcome the least of these and serve the least of these. That our hearts would recognize that that's who you've called us to be. That's not just what we do in our spare time, but that's what you've called us to be servants for your glory, that we would reflect you as you served us. And I pray that we would, we would gaze at your glory and gaze at your majesty and how you, the creator of the universe, came to, to serve us 
and that would shock us into humility and move us to servanthood for your glory. In Jesus' name.